Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. The words of Torah we're engaging with this morning are the ones from the last parsha uh, before the book of Exodus begins. So this is the last parsha of the book of Breshit, of Genesis. It is the end, of course, of the Joseph uh, story, the Joseph narrative, and it takes place at the time that it seems that Yaakov is on his deathbed. He's preparing for death. Um, most sources agree that it's when this happens, it's really about he knows within the next year or so, right? So it's not that it's not necessarily that it's immediate, but he he knows he's weakening and he knows it's time to put his house in order, as it were, right? We don't wait until we're completely compromised on the deathbed to do our will, right? We make sure all of the arrangements that we want to take care of for the family, we make sure that that happens while we're still able to do it, but sometimes don't really go there until urgency, right? A sense of some urgency drives us there. So this is this is the place we're at with Yaakov. We've uh, not studied together the last few weeks, so we've missed a big chunk of the Joseph story, but I trust you. That is a good thing. It's such a blessing, and it's a great thing to hear. I, too, miss it, actually, even on vacation. I was like, wait, what? Like, it's Friday. Like, where, where are my people? Um, so the so the story, most of you, I trust, know enough of the story, right, to, to know that Joseph has let his brothers know who he is. He's, you know, they've made some kind of peace with one another, and now... Uh, we're at this very last scene uh, between Yaakov and Yosef. When Pesach comes around, so plagues are in Exodus. Right when we talk about leaving Egypt, no worries, no worries. That's what we're here for to remind ourselves: no plagues in the Joseph story. Um, lots of troubling things, lots of difficulty and suffering, but no plagues exactly. Although I would love to see the version that you would paint of the Joseph story with plagues and what that might look like. Um, so let's look at Parshat Vayechi, uh, which is chapter 47, verse 28. And everybody there? Okay. Jacob lived 17 years in the land of Egypt, so that the span of Jacob's life came to 147 years. And when the time approached for Israel to die, he summoned his son Yosef and said to him, do me this favor. Place your hand under my thigh as a pledge of your steadfast loyalty. Please do not bury me in Egypt. When I lie down with my fathers, take me up from Egypt and bury me in their burial place. He replied, I will do as you have spoken. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed at the head of the bed. All right. So when one is coming to make arrangements at the end of life, 
There are a couple of things, there are a couple of categories of things that are uh, usually foremost in our mind. The first one is, where am I going to be buried? And in the ancient world, as in today's world in some ways, um, it depends on your descendants to take care of that for you. So now we can make all kinds of arrangements, and I suppose it could happen without dependents, um, but they're your agent. Once you're no longer able to do anything for yourself, your de- your descendants are your agents who are going to um, be the only ones who can enact your will, essentially. Uh, and so it's very important to know where we're going to rest. It is something that, that is really a deep part of what it means to make peace with the end of life, is to know where our remains will be or what will happen with them if it's not a place, right? Um, to know to know, to have some kind of sense of closure about and and security, knowing that here here's where either my burial place will be, or this is where they're going to spread the ashes. Hi, Brian. Welcome. Come sit. George doesn't usually bite, so you can sit next to him. <laughs> That's George. That's Elaine. <laughs> Not usually, but um, yes. Um, is there a particular reason why it went between Jacob and Israel? Um, so the name is used interchangeably until a point in this parsha where it is exclusively Yaakov that's used. Um, and so the commentators have you know, lots of um, wonderful, a t- good time exploring, like, why is it Yaakov, you know, from here on? Um, so I would love for us, when we're done with this, for you to tell me why you think it's Yaakov here and and not Yisrael, right? You know, for, throughout this this end of the of the story. All right. So the burial. So the, remember when we have things like this, when we have um, the end of life situation here, and and what's going to happen here with him making arrangements. These are rituals, right? These are. These are, this is a ritual moment. So that's what you're seeing here. This is not just, hi son, can you please bury me? And, oh sure dad, I'll do that. Okay, great. Right? This is, this is a real ritual. And what is the indication of that? What is this business with hands under thighs? It's like a pledge. The testicles, yes. Very good, Reuben. Very good memory. Testimony. <laughs> Testimony. Testify, right? So placing the hand under the thigh places the hand close to the testes, uh, which is a symbol for, um, for, <laughs> for a symbol of trust. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, as, <laughs> as an intimacy, it could turn out really badly, right? Um, which is why we shake hands, right? To show that my hand doesn't conceal a weapon. So it's a sign of trust. If I clasp hands with you with my sword hand, um, then I, there's no sword in it, right? So I can't, or my dagger hand, whatever. So, so many of these acts are acts of vulnerability on, you know, and, and the trust that that entails, which is what gives the act power, right? Part of what gives it power. Also progeny, right? The testes are about, um, future fertility, not just that you'll have children, but that, because Yaakov has a bunch of adult children, and he has grandchildren, as we see. Um, so it's not about that they'll have them, but that they will do well. That that you're, You can have lots of children in the ancient world, and it still might come to absolutely nothing, right? If there's a famine, 
right? So, um, or things don't go well, or there's war, and they lose, and their cities raised to the ground. It doesn't matter how many kids you started with, right? So, um, so all of that is implicated in this under the thigh business. Where have we seen this before? Exactly. Abraham has Eliezer put his hand under his thigh to take the oath to find a bride for Yitzchak and to say that he will never take Yitzchak out of the land. So we've seen this before. This is not new. This is um, absolutely normative in terms of a very serious vow, a very serious promise that's going to happen. So that's what's happening, this ritual moment where do me this favor, says Yaakov, place your hand under my thigh. Yes. So I say I will absolutely do what you've asked. Now, what does he answer? Thank you. Not <laughs> so then, why? So, so why doesn't he say thank you? What swear to me? It's part of the oath. It's part of the ritual. This is part of the ritual. Do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? Right. Why would you be standing here if you weren't ready to take her as your lawfully wedded wife? Right. So what? I wouldn't say swear to me again. You might. Right. So. I do. If, if, yes, I said I do. So it's um. So there's so ritual is crafted by different cultures, right, in different ways. And clearly, this ritual is the physical act of placing the hand under the thigh, right? So he he has Joseph do that, right? And he says. Let that be a pledge, right, of your steadfast loyalty. And now comes the ritual words. Please do not bury me in Egypt. So that, that's the formulaic piece of, of, what, of what he's formally now, with the hand under the thigh, asking Joseph. And when I lie down with my fathers, take me from Egypt and bury me in their burial place. He replied, Joseph replies, I will do as you have spoken. And he says, Yaakov says, swear to me. It's not enough to agree. Now it comes to the ritual swearing. I swear to, you know, we have, you know, we see that lots of places where you, you know, raise your hand and I swear. And, and it's the formal um, ritual oath. And he says he swears to him and Israel bows at the head of the bed. Uh, probably um, there's some ritual involved with the person who's just been promised something to thank the other person by indicating that physically, but if Yaakov is indeed ill or frail or at the end of his life, it's possible he can't get out of bed to do that. So he does the next best thing. He indicates a bow uh, in bed. There's a commentary in, in, this, in the Red Book here about steadfast loyalty, what's translated as steadfast loyalty, uh-huh. which is, the, the Hebrew says chesed ve'amets, Right. Has, at least to me, a completely different sense of chesed, of loving kindness and faithfulness and truth. I yes. Mean, steadfast loyalty just doesn't do it. <laughs> right. What is your feeling? chesed So that you shall do to me, you shall behave towards me with chesed ve'emet, right? And um, this is, you know, one of the things the rabbis talk about, about all things around death are chesed ve'emet, because they cannot be repaid. So, um, so act towards me in chesed and emet, in loving kindness and truth, um, is about, because there's nothing, you're not going to get repaid for it, say the rabbis, right? That, that all these things around death are about 
um, truly an act of wanting to to do something for the other that is completely selfless because they can't then do something nice like, for you. Like yes. Yes, absolutely. Ruben? I think absolutely there is meaning. What do you think that might be? Joseph's position? Right, Joseph's a pretty powerful guy. This is his turf. This is his wheelhouse. It's his neighborhood. So certainly there's some of that. But I think the ritual formality and the supplication part of the ritual is is that really when we're talking about end of life stuff, we have no we have no power to control what the other person's going to do if it's about when we're gone. Right? I think there is no matter how powerful one is when it comes to asking that our remains, you know, a certain thing happen after our death, we really are complete supplicants in, in terms of whether or not it will be fulfilled for us. Right? All right, good. Right, 48. Sometime afterward, Joseph was told, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to see you, Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. All right, so obviously he was not on his deathbed. Here's the proof, mm-hmm. right? Sometime after that, now he's, now he's ill to the point of they're expecting the end. And Jacob said to Yosef, El Shaddai appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me and said to me, I will make you fertile and numerous, making of you a community of peoples, and I will assign this land to your offspring to come for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt shall be mine. <coughs> Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine no less than Reuben and Simeon. But progeny born to you after them shall be yours. They shall be recorded instead of their brothers in their inheritance. I do this because when I was returning from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow while I was journeying in the land of Canaan, uh, whilst when still some distance shortfall of Ephrath, and I buried her there on the road to Ephrath, now Bethlehem. Okay. So Joseph has come to see his father, who presumably is dying. And he gathers his last strength to be able to sit up and greet his son. And he says, El Shaddai appeared to me in Luz. Where's Luz? This is the original name of Bethel. What happened in Bethel for Yaakov? Bless you. The angel, right? So this is, Bethel is where Yaakov's name was changed from Yaakov to Yisrael after he wrestles with the Ish, Malach, whatever. What is the significance of El Shaddai instead of Elohim? Or? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's a good it's a good question. Let me look at seventeen. Another one of the many names for God, but on seventeen one. Maybe the same God. Um, El Shaddai is to be identified with Yudhei Vavhe. This accords exactly with Exodus six two. I am Yudhei Vavhe. I appeared to Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov as El Shaddai. Um, so linking this, th- th- this is the same God that spoke to Abraham and to Yitzchak and then to Yaakov. 
So on the etymology of El Shaddai, that's a whole nother conversation. Some people want to call it, it being about a mountain. Shade in Hebrew is breast. So Shaddaiim would be breasts. Shaddai, my breast. So Rabbi Arthur Waskow has a whole piece on the many-breasted God. So possibly a holdover from from a matriarchal image, right, a, a feminine image of the divine, the divine nurturer, right? If you look in the ancient world, the image of the goddess is always with big thighs and a belly and, right, and large breasts because that was the, that was the symbol of God's, uh, of God giving life and sustenance and, uh, fertility, fecundity, right, in all ways, in all things. And so there's, there's some folks who want to make it about a mountain. I'm not so convinced, right? I mean, I think we have to take seriously the possibility that this this is a a leftover from earlier feminine imagery for God. The, the comment in the Red Book on 17.1 says uh, we're first to the Mary Magdalene, who was understanding El Shaddai to mean the God who says die enough. Enough. As in, you know, when we say Dayenu and Passover, that dies. So, like, it's time to stop behaving like children. You gotta love the rabbis. <laughs> They're just gonna ignore the shin, right? This is die enough, because the people of Israel certainly need to be told enough, like quite often. But gotta love the rabbis. So, um, all right. So, and and we've heard God say before in seventeen, what God is saying is, your ancestors before me knew me as El Shaddai. I am Yod Vafe, I am that same God. I am both El Shaddai and Yod Vafe. You have to remember this is early after polytheism, right? So there's a constant need to remind everybody that we're talking about the same God, even if there are different names. Because before this, before this, different names meant different deities. In Canaan, we, let's say it again, Israelites were converted Canaanites. We were Canaanites. So when you have different names, the instinct is, oh, now we're talking about a different God. So constantly, early Israel has to be told or reminded or it's reaffirmed, El Shaddai is the same as yod heh is the same as Elohim, is the same as Adonai, is this, right? It's the same. Because that is not normative in the ancient Near East at this time. And this is our great um, plea to the Arabs that this land belongs to us. So this is the traditional argument that the land was promised, according to Torah, to our ancestors, 100%. That is the traditional religious argument for the land of Israel. It's not the only argument. Um, secular Zionists did not rely on God promising anything, right? But um, but yes, for religious Zionists, this is absolutely – and even – Religious folks who are not Zionists, so who don't believe in the state of Israel, but believe this, the, that land will belong to us when God brings Mashiach and the third temple happens, right? They just think we're rushing God. We have some nerve to say, God is late, and we're going to make the state without you, right? So there are religious Zionists and religious anti-Zionists within Judaism. The secular Zionists, then, I take it, believe we captured it as ours. <laughs> so, and, and lots of historical claims to having lived in that land and having been exiled from that land and and the right to reclaim that land. 
and enough people agreed with it that the Balfour Declaration passed, right? Enough of the world agreed that that there was a historical claim that we had the partition into Israel and Palestine, the original partition agreement, which the Arab world rejected. And it gets complicated because if people believe that this the Torah was written by people and not by God, then what is the status of the claim? Right. So, well, it's certainly certainly not a religious one. Right. Right. But it might be a historical one because if it was this was even if this is written by people, it's written a super long time ago, right? Which means already there was a a Jewish people claim to that land. <laughs> okay. Not. <laughs> right. Our text say it belongs to us. Right there. Right there says it. Black and white. We go down this road and we'll never finish this. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I'm trying to find where we were. Road. I know. I'm telling you. Uh, all right. So, and what what happened with this El Shaddai? Blessed me and said to me, verse 4, I will make you fertile and numerous, making of you a community of peoples, and I will assign this land to your offspring to come for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt shall be mine. What's happening? Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine no less than Reuven and Shimon. We have the second ceremony here. This is an adoption. Adoption. Yaakov is adopting Ephraim and Manasseh. Progeny born to you after them, if you have more children, they're your children, right? Um, They shall be recorded instead of their brothers and their inheritance. So um, Ephraim and Manasseh are now going to inherit directly from Yaakov. And when we count the 12 tribes, we count... Ephraim and Manasseh. I do this, so let's find out what's going on. I do this because when I was returning from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow while I was journeying in the land of Canaan, when still some distance short of Ephrat, and I buried her there on the road to Ephrat, now Beit Lechem. So what does this have to do with the price of tea in China? I have no idea. No idea, Reuben. <laughs> <laughs> um, any ideas? Yeah, she would have said, Okay, Pam. Um, that he was so connected to Rachel and he wanted I guess Joseph was going to stay in Egypt presumably and so his children he wanted a pure line between him and Rachel. Uh, if we're not counting Joseph wise. Be, you know, kind of that line. So why couldn't Yosef be that line? I I wonder about that. Uh, to me, it must be because he's going to stay in Egypt. And so we're Ephraim and Manasseh. We're going to be in Egypt for the next 400 years. Yeah, I, I don't know that. <laughs> but there's some connection, obviously, with... With Rachel. Yeah. Rita? Well, if she hadn't died, she would have had more children. Exactly. If she did die, I'm going to take these substitutes. But I have to put a plug in for Ephraim, because that's my Hebrew name. My last name is Ephraim in Israel. There you go. So Rita Ephraim is, uh, is weighing in on the connection is that Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. Right? She died in childbirth. So she was robbed of any more children. And Leah, of course, had 
all of these children, uh, but it was Rachel that he loved. Right, that's my Hebrew name. Um, so Rachel the beautiful um, that Joseph, that Jacob loved, uh, and so he he wants to give her more children in the only way that he can, which is adopting Yosef's children as his own, as if they had come from him and her, because they have, in a sense, come from him and her through Yosef. Is there a second thing going on here, which is that he is, to some degree, mitigating their Egyptness? It's a very, very interesting question. So if he adopts them as his own, then they are no longer the sons of the vizier of Egypt only. They are the sons of a patriarch of Israel. And what do we know about Yosef? What is he not? A patriarch. Mm-hmm. He's many things. He's certainly a doctor. You know, like he—he's a famous doctor. He's a very fa- he did very well for himself, right? He's—he's he's very successful. He never got a message that he's the next in line. He never got the promise, right, of many offspring and the land and blah 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 blah. We never see Yosef have an interaction with God, actually. So, so very possibly. It's right. It's Yaakov saying, "Love that you're so successful. Love that you've got this Egypt thing going on. That's fabulous. It has saved our whole family. And there's something other than physical inheritance of food and all this. You know, the palace, the horses, the chariot, everything that Joseph has. There's another inheritance at play here. There's another inheritance at stake, and he wants to make sure, possibly, that he's adopting those boys into that inheritance of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and the divine promise, and all that that has meant to this family. Richard? Perhaps he's also aware of the fact that, you know, Pharaohs come and go, who the vizier is comes and goes, their fortunes rise and fall. As we're going to see. As we're going to see, but... You know, if you're if you're if you're plugged into the God patriarch connection, then no matter what happens, um, you know your your children are safe. Your 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 fortune. Your former children. Your former children. And your fortunes, your future fortunes, are in trust forever. Whereas we see very soon, what what's the first part of Exodus going to be? And there arose in Egypt a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph, right? And then. She goes, right, it's not good for us from there. Um, but like Richard is saying, but if you if you put your trust not in your power as, you know, a, a, the secular authority, but put it instead in God, right, that, that's a whole nother ballgame because here we are, right? We're still sitting here, right? We, our inheritance is secure because of that, because there was this whole other, under, other understanding of, of what we really inherit, right? And and where to where to place our trust in terms of that inheritance. Okay. Eight. Noticing Joseph's sons, Israel asked, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. Bring them up to me, he said, that I may bless them. Now Israel's eyes were dim with age. He could not see. So Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see you again, and here God has let me see your children as well. Joseph then removed them from his knees and bowed low with his face to the ground. Joseph took the two of them, Ephraim and uh, in his right hand to Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand to Israel's right, and brought them close to him. 
But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, thus crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph, saying, The God in whose ways my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd from my birth to this day, the angel who's redeemed me from all harm, bless these lads. In them may my name be recalled, and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they be teeming multitudes upon the earth. Why don't you just finish it out? When Joseph saw that his father was placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he thought it wrong. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Menashe's. Not so, father, Joseph said to his father, for the other is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father objected, saying, I know, my son, I know. He too shall become a people, and he too shall be great. Yet his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall be plentiful enough for nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you shall Israel invoke blessings, saying, God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be here. Well, God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. And now I assign to you one portion more than to your brothers. And I wrested him from the Amorites with my sword, which I wrested from the Amorites with my sword and bow. Okay. So we had one ceremony, the ceremony of swearing um, to take care of his body. And so now... Uh, we're coming to the second ceremony. So he takes note, Israel takes note of Joseph's sons and says, who are these? And Joseph says to his father, these are my sons whom God has given to me here. And, and Jacob says, bring them to me that I might bless them. So people are like, wait a minute, he's lived there 17 years and he doesn't know who his grandsons are? And so other people say, oh, well, his vision is dim, right? And his eyes are... Pfft. And he just like adopts? This is a ceremony. Who brings this bride to be, you know, I do. Everyone, no one knows who her father is. Like everyone, it's, this is the, this is the ritual. You, and we have in Ugarit, we have a parallel, uh, text that has been found that is almost exactly this ceremony for adoption of an heir. Uh, and so this is absolutely normative in the ancient Near East that if you're going to adopt, remember we talked about this with, with um, Hagar and Sarah. Do you remember we talked about um, adopting an heir and then what happens if you have a natural heir and that displaces Ishmael, right? Because um, remember she births on um, the thighs? Okay. So this is a similar, a similar adoption ritual. So the formal ritual question, who are these yeah. young people? The natural biological father has to identify them. They are my sons that were born to me here. We, we got to make sure we got the right players, right? And that is a ritual formula. Who gives this woman to this man? Exactly right. We, everyone in the room knows who her father is. Like, why do you have to ask that question? Because it's the ritual way of, of the parties have to identify or someone has to identify them who has standing in the ceremony. So this is all ceremonial. These are my sons. The father says, I identify these as my sons. Bring them to me, says Yaakov, that I might bless them. Now, right, this is the, the other part of the ritual. And Yisrael's eyes were dim with age. He could not see. 
So Yosef brought them close to him and he kissed them and embraced them. So he's, he's having a hard time seeing is one interpretation, right? Because remember, that is your English translation. What does the Hebrew say? Verse 10, Ve'ene Yisrael, Kavdu Mizakain. Rita? We're heavy from age. So. Tired, droopy. Tired, droopy, right? Lots of people are having surgery now to do this, right? Because if your eyes are narrower, are you laughing, Laura, at me? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> if your eyes are narrow and your right, and this as we age, right, th- then this can droop over the eye, right? This skin here can droop over the eye, and it's hard to get your eyes open. Um, so it's possible that he's having, tr- literally, having trouble seeing from just I'm his. My doctor today, and I'm going to tell him I'm heavy with age. <laughs> <laughs> my eyes are heavy with age. Keep two a nine, a nine. Right. Uh, that's the only reason. So um, the other possibility that some people point to is cataracts. Um, and since he, he can no longer see. I mean, what's, what? yeah. well, but that's he later says he knows. Right. <laughs> um, so we I want you to hold to Ruben's just lifted it up and call it out. So I want you to hold, if this is metaphorical, what does it mean? He's, his eyes are heavy from age, and he does not see. He cannot see. What? So let's hold, what if it's metaphorical? Okay? So, and let us please remember with whom we're dealing. Who are we dealing with here? The birthright getter. Ah, the birthright getter. And how did he get the birthright? His father couldn't see. It sounds very familiar. His father couldn't see, and so he pretends to be somebody else and steals the blessing. What is he giving here? The the inheritance blessing, right? And you indicated, right? Not only is he going to give the blessing, but he also is going to give to the chooses, to give to the younger what belongs in this and remember, we've talked about this belongs absolutely in this society to the firstborn. You you have to know the story to know right what's happening here. That he's seventeen years gave him time to see that Ephraim was more um, worthy. Well, certainly Yaakov might be open to that as an idea, mightn't he? Yes. <laughs> right. Yaakov is like, okay, well, wait, why does it have to go necessarily to the firstborn? Yaakov is a great, a great one to, to be open to that idea. All right. Um, and, and by the way, that's what happens every time for us. We say absolutely, 100%, it's the firstborn always. It's the only way you avoid war and chaos within families. It's absolute. And in every single generation of ours, what happens? It's flipped. Right? So I said to one of my bar mitzvah students that I was studying with recently, I said, so what what does that say to you? That our text comes from a world that understands 100% it's always, always, always the firstborn and is flipped in every case. Why is that? Well, Sheldon. I mean, this is all myth. Why is the myth makers uh, create that? Why do you think? 
<laughs> they were either younger children. <laughs> All right, let's say it's not because they're youngest children. It's because life doesn't go according to all the rules. Ever. And Torah seems not not only to accept, but the myth makers created the myth that in every generation and blesses the fact, just by the fact that they become the patriarchs, that it was the right decision to flip. Right? Yishmael was the firstborn. He doesn't get it. Right? It's and so every single time this is what happens and it happens with Rachel and Leah right and to some extent right and um the firstborn that's my problem I give right Sheldon it's it's a burden to be the firstborn is it not it is it is a huge responsibility that some of us take very seriously and grow into um beautifully um it doesn't seem to be suggesting always challenge the rules just this rule. So, and, and I'm not even sure it's saying challenge the rule, right? It seems that kind of to what Judith is saying, it life, life, flips. life flips things. Children don't die before parents. You know, they did. All these rules get flipped. They, they and, rule at all. Um, well, well, because the, cause the people who are creating this story live in a world with rules. And we still do too. And yet we have gotten to the point, I think, where we know the rules don't always work. We should elect the best president. And so, what? So we value democracy. We value trusting the people with the decision to choose the most powerful position in the land. Life just does that. And sometimes... It doesn't work. Or it works out differently than what we usually think when we put the rule in place. But Torah seems to bless that fact, right? To say we have to embrace the fact that it flips. And the beauty of Torah is that it recognizes reality. Jealousy, hatred, envy, rules not being observed, war. These are not things that we're urged to participate in, to, to try to get. But it happens. Life happens to us whether we like it or not. Well said, Judith. Were you going to say something, Laura? Your suggestion that this particular flipping is blessed by Torah, is a, is, I agree with what you said, but I think that that's another um, wrinkle to it. It's a, different, it's a different thing that you're talking about. Why is this particular flipping seem to be blessed? when There's lots of other things that happen and get topsy-turvy that just sort of happen, Jealousies happen, um, so um, it seems like it's focused on this sibling switcheroo. Yeah. Um, I think possibly, I mean, this is just me talking off the top of my head, but possibly, it's, first of all, that is one of the most powerful birth order, particularly in the ancient world. Birth order was one of the most powerful determinants of your place in this world and in life and in the social system of the extended family. Remember, we're not talking individuals. There is no idea of the individual in these texts. I mean, of course, there are individuals, but the, the idea is not the, the, the individual is not the focus ever. The clan is the focus. Your position in the clan relative to everyone else in the clan is what matters. That's why Rachel is so miserable. Right. Not having more children. Right. Um, so 
and Sarah, you know, her agony, right? Because it's all about your social network and your social relationships. So I think, so what, what do we see the women focusing on and, and, um, not just focusing, what, what is it, if it's more than that? Obsessing. obsessing about, they're obsessing about children because that determines their status. They're, that, that is the determinant of their status in that clan forever. For boys, it is their birth order. So I think it goes to the primary anxiety and you add to that the emotional and psychological intensity of the relationships between siblings in a world where their position, right, is determined, right, it is very important. And just, just normally, look at siblings normally, the things they do to each other. It's torture living with another human being that close and sharing parents. It's torture. It's horrible. Um, it can be fabulous and wonderful. Um, but it has its moments. But it, but really, it's fraught with so much stuff that I think if you're going to pick one, for women, it's children and pregnancy and childbirth. And for um, males, it is their their uh, birth order. So if you're going to mess with something and really explore your relationship to flipping what you assume to be the ground rules of the game, this is this is one of them, or the one for them. Speaking of flipping things, why why is there no objection from Joseph over what's just happened? So he objects. He objects about the order. But, yes. Yeah, but he doesn't object to the adoption. He doesn't want to object to the adoption. Why? He wants. He In other words, if you were if you were a parent, you would consent to having your children be adopted by your parent. Who's dying? Who's dying? Uh, right. He he's dying, and he's going to now leave in an, a huge inheritance to Joseph's sons. And I imagine it's not just. Material things, as we've said, he's adopting them into, right, what he understands. So I think Joseph understands this to be a loving act by his father of wanting to bring his children especially close because he's not doing this for his other grandchildren. Um, and so I think it's a more, well, it's many, it's many layered, but, um, but I think it's understood by Joseph to be a, a good thing that his father wants to do for his children. Um, but you could, you could imagine a Joseph who says, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> they will be Egyptian. They will be like inheriting. I don't really care about this. Like that's your business, Dad. You know this whole patriarchy, blah blah blah, El Shaddai, whatever. That's your thing. But but Joseph seems to have an, a relationship with the divine. Remember when he's standing before Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, "Wow, you're so good at this," and Joseph says, "It's not me, right? It's God." And the reason I got sold into slavery was so God could put me in this position, right, to save my family. So he seems to have a real sense of connection to um, to God and not to the gods of Egypt. Um, so, so I think that's... It's also an explanation of why the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh are part of the 12 tribes. Okay, so <laughs> that's the other layer. Reuben is always... We always get reminded through Reuben and, and our uh, conversation that um, that there's two layers happening always. There's lived history and Torah history. Often, Torah history is a reflection of lived history this is most likely a remnant of a time when Menashe was larger and more powerful than the tribe of Ephraim. Because what we tend to think, right, let's remember, I'm going to pick a marker that matches my outfit. <laughs> we tend to think that there were 12 individuals 
And that results in 12 tribes, right? So we would have to look to who are the individuals that defines 12 tribes. What really happened? 12 tribes needed a story to explain why the elephant has a long trunk. <laughs> This is what was written by 12 tribes about 12 individuals who were all brothers, and that's how we, confederation of tribes in this neighborhood, that's how we got, that's why we're close. That's why it's natural that we would be a confederation, because we are kin. Yeah, so we the, create mythic kinship. Yeah. So without this, there's ten. Without Ephraim and Menashe, right. there are ten. So presumably there were ten. Then you add two, and Levi. Yeah. Yeah. The of land, correct, because they're going to serve, right, um, instead of the firstborn. That's also one that uh, is, is not If we're talking about land, right, Levi's not one of the 12, but we're talking about 12 tribes that identified as a confederation, Levi's one of them. So the 12 tribes that come together, however that eventually happened, Menashe, this reflects a time when the tribe of Menashe was mm -hmm. Large and powerful, more than Ephraim. And then later, Ephraim becomes more numerous and more powerful because there's no reason to make this up. Otherwise, says my commentary, right? This is most likely based on a historical memory that Menashe at one point was ascendant. All right. But I just want to make sure we remember which direction it goes. Because we tend to think it starts here and becomes... And it's just because I get how we think that way, but that's not how it is. It starts from the reality, and then this is crafted to be the explanation of how we came to be this confederation is because they were 12 brothers, right? And we descend from them. Well, it's like that in almost any culture. Right. It's kind of like, it's not, it's not like the, the Trojans brought their origin story to Italy and the Romans got... You know, well, we've got 200 years of text saying where we came from. We have a we have a Roman poet Virgil writing this story of how somebody came from Troy to the land of Italy right. and found Rome. Exactly. All right. So you can move off. I just had a very tiny little question. You can kick off. I know my son. I know. Sounds very poetic and uh, melodic and repeats itself. So it's and whenever Torah repeats itself, we know yeah. something's going on and you know, I, and I think it's it's Yaakov saying I know. I get it. Yeah. And my hands are remaining in this right it's saying I know. I get it. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not moving my hand, right? This is it's completely intentional. What he's doing, he doesn't explain. <laughs> well, it's also it also proves that that this was not deception. It gives it a legitimacy. Right. So um, he wasn't fooled into this. 
is, yeah, no, I know what I'm doing. It may not seem to be the right thing, but trust me, I see. I know and I understand. I know, and this is not a case like I did to my father, right, of deception. I know exactly what I'm doing, and right, and he doesn't move his hands. Even with the case of Isaac, it wasn't clear that he didn't know. Mm -hmm. He didn't look at the words. He's well, you know, it feels like him, but something's not right. And if we really want to push it, if we really want to push it, maybe Yaakov was resentful always that he suspected Isaac really knew, but wouldn't say out loud, I know, I know, right? And and that Yaakov possibly carries that still and says, I'm not going to let that happen in the case of Ephraim and Manasha. I'm going to say it out loud that I understand exactly what it is that's happening here, even though it's not what's expected. Barbara? What about the part um, when he talks about that Jacob knows the future? He says, I know what's going to happen. Manasha is going to be more powerful. That's why I'm doing it. And the whole idea of seeing the future in other characters in the Bible. If you're writing it later, that's easy. <laughs> right. All right. If you write it after the fact, it's pretty pretty easy to know. Hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, so, like, I know what's going to be. So Yaakov doesn't at, at that point with that action is not saying I know that Ephraim is going to be ascendant over Manasseh. Uh, what he's saying is, by, by doing this, he's saying, this is what I'm helping to create. Oh, I thought he meant... And yeah. in, so there is some level of, yes, projecting forward, but he's saying the... So it's got that prophetic edge to it, and he's helping, helping make that happen by switching his hands. Um, and so thank you for bringing me, Barbara, to um, to the Sefer Torah itself. So later, when he's going to bless his sons... Yaakov says, "Come closer, and I'm going to have, and I'm going to tell you what's going to happen." Miketz Yamim at the end of days, and he's going to prophesy, and then he moves right on to blessing them. And so all the commentators go, "Wait a minute! Like, you know, Yaakov seems to know a little bit about what's going to happen and what's going to be, and now he says for sure, clearly, out loud, I'm going to talk about, you know, what's going to be ultimately, and then he doesn't. So look at, so I want you to see the Torah." where this parsha begins because in every Torah between each parsha there's a minimum of nine spaces right each letter by a scribe has a certain amount of space attributed to it and there has to be nine spaces minimum between the end of one parsha and the beginning of the next parsha sometimes there's a whole line you know, like the the words stop here and then to the end of the column it's left blank in every single case as part of the kind of the rules of of the game of writing a Sefer Torah. So we're going to look, if anyone who wants to, um, can come and see where this Parsha starts. So um, this word right here. Right? Bert, will you see if you can find the other Parsha? The Parsha before this? Okay. So here's here's last week's Parsha. Vayigash. So if you look where we see Vayigash, there's a space. Mm-hmm. It's like this with every Parsha, that at least nine spaces are left. Um, and like I said, sometimes it's all the way to the end of the line. But there's always this space that indicates we're starting a new Torah portion. So there's the beginning of Parsha Vayigash. 
It goes on, it goes on, it goes on. And you would wait, you would normally say, oh, there's a break, there's a break, that must be, right, the next Parsha. Um, so there are several breaks from Vayigash, from the beginning of that Parsha, like there's lots of breaks, but where does our Torah portion start? Here. Vayichi Yaakov Eretz Mitzrayim Shana, right? So Vayichi is the only portion in the Torah to start in the middle of a column and with, no and with no space. There's not the minimum required nine spaces here. So what what is our tradition going to do with that? Is that an accident? No. Chas no. v'shalom. So <laughs> this is the rabbi saying, yes, Yaakov was going to prophesy and he was going to prophesy about the end of days. He was going to prophesy about everything that was coming. That Yes, Joseph and his family so powerful and yes, you're going to have this blessing and yes, you're going to inherit that land but let me tell you what's going to happen before that. You're going to be slaves here for 400 years, right? And and then he's going to talk about Yimei Mashiach, the days of the Messiah. Like he's going to prophesy everything. And what happens? God shuts him down and says, <laughs> no. First of all, they can't know what's happening right now. They they can't know. It's not okay to tell these folks that you're about to enter one of the bleakest periods of your history. And... About the end of days, it's it's not on you to talk about, right? It's not for you to tell them. And so here we get what's called satum, and it's the most satum, the most closed, the most sealed off parsha in the entire Torah is this week's parsha. So Barbara, it goes to your point that he seems to have the capacity, and God shuts it down, right, and says, uh-uh. Not for you to talk about. Yes. <laughs> right? Um, I don't know where the nine uh, comes from exactly. Yeah, yeah the, the width of something. Um, the Torah scribes did this, and now we're finding an explanation? Or what, what came first, chicken or egg? Excellent question, Ms. Efrat. So it's a, stri- it's a scribal tradition, uh, and then the rabbis have this wonderful... Sounds like a scribe made a mistake one day, and everybody now has a big explanation. Right? Which is how many wonderful explanations happen, right? Is it probably a vav got too long? Or yud got too long and now it's a vav and so we have this whole story about why it's a vav and not a yud, and, right? Someone forgot to leave nine spaces and now we have this wonderful whole story and tradition around. Or, you know, there is some intention that we don't exactly know about. Mm-hmm. Okay. Beginning of, of Vayigash. So Vayigash had nine spaces, spaces before the word Vayigash. Not in this book, but in a, in a Torah scroll. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I understand, but that's the way back at the beginning. Was, was not at this point where he says, "Gather around, and I may tell you." That's, that's really when the problem comes. When the, when the issue of needing to shut it down. Yes. So Vayigash was last week's Torah portion. Charles just showing us that that there was nine spaces before the word Vayigash. Vayachi, so so the, the rabbis want to explain why is there no space before Vayachi? 
And it's because this is buried in Bible. Because in this Parsha, right. blah, 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 blah happens. Okay. We're Jewish. Come on. <laughs> Work with me here. Um, is, is this the only, this might be a little bit off subject. What? But is this, yeah. No, it's not the first time. So, um, as I said, we saw it very clearly with Sarah, who has Hagar right. given to Abraham in order to have a son that she will birth on Sarah's knees. Right, so yeah. so um, she Hagar's going to birth. She's going to birth on Sarah's knees because that child is going to be Sarah's heir. I mean, Abraham's heir also, but but Sarah has no children, and so she's going to adopt Hagar's child as her own, and that's that ceremony with knees, right? And we saw it here, right? We saw that he takes them off of Yaakov's knees. So clearly they've been either between his knees or, you know, somehow that, that ritual aspect of adoption. I'm sorry? I think we talk about the subject someplace else. Yeah, but so tell me what, what you want to know about this idea of adoption in the ancient world or in Torah? Well, in terms of the heritage, in terms of um, your favor, that sort of thing. So it would have been that if someone didn't have a natural heir, that they would adopt an heir. Um, so sometimes when we, when we look at the women of the Torah, uh, like we talked about um, with Sarah and Hagar, it might have been because there are implications ritually for what the descendant does for the ancestor. And that, that by adopting a descendant, you are not only giving an inheritance, you are obligating somebody to do the rituals for you as an ancestor that won't happen if you don't have an heir. By the time Torah comes along, those rituals we don't have anymore, but it definitely was what happened in the ancient Near East and has to impact early Israel. Um, and so we only talk about it in terms of inheritance, but it would have been also obligations um, to to the ancestor that you get adopted by. Written. Correct. Absolutely. So there's many midrashim that only make sense once you're dealing with a written tradition. Right, that if you're dealing with an oral tradition, would not be the same. Right. First of all, there's visual, visual midrashim, um, but also spelling of words, you know, things like that. Why is a hey here and not like on on uh, Rivka? It says Hanaar instead of Naara. There's a hey missing. It says the youth, but it's a male youth. A hey needs to be there for it to be a female youth. So like, but only in a written 
tradition do we then have a lot of midrash to explain why she's referred to as a male youth and not a female youth, right? So exactly. So it's a good thing to, to remember that there's different phases and different stages of the evolution of the text. All right, let's close with this uh, this business. Turn to page two. Uh, so the back of your first page. Go down to the paragraph that starts in this parasha. And where is this from? They're numbered at the top right, page two of four. And where is this from? This is shamash.org, which once upon a time is where I got most of my commentary from. All right, so we ready? In this parasha, we're taught that Jacob's eyes, too, were kavdumi zokain, clouded or heavy with age. Having endured the turmoil of his life, fleeing from his dysfunctional family, running from his enraged brother, being tricked initially out of marrying his beloved Rachel, failing to see the turmoil raging amongst his sons, enduring the apparent death of his beloved son Joseph, Jacob lacks more than 2020 eyesight. Throughout his life, he is unable to open his heart enough to see the beauty before his eyes. That is... He is unable to do so, and this is this person's commentary or their opinion. He's unable to do so until this week's parasha, until he finally realizes at the end of his life that he must transcend his suffering and embrace those he wants to love with fullness and openness. So he wraps his arms around his grandchildren, Manasseh and Ephraim, and calls them his own. He offers them blessings because he recognizes, he finally sees that they are part of his blessing. Soon thereafter, he blesses all of his children, offering them wisdom based on his new insight. How sad it is that Jacob has to wait until the end of his days to see the blessings and beauty that surround him. To help us move from such blindness, our Jewish holy days encourage us to see what is what really is and what really can be. We learn from Hanukkah that in the midst of darkness, we can increase the brightness in our lives and in our world, allowing us to see more clearly. We learn from Pesach that in the midst of hopelessness, we can envision a better tomorrow and move forward into a brighter future. And we learn from Yom Kippur that when we step back from those sensations that confuse or control us, we can gain insight, sight inside ourselves to glimpse the truth that resides within. Will you learn to see life as it truly is? Will you find a way to envision the blessings that are and can be yours? May you, differently from Yaakov, find that insight earlier, now, so that you can still enjoy the blessings that surround you. Let this be a guiding question for us this Shabbat. Are we open to seeing the blessing? Remember that the people of Israel will be blessed forever with may you be like Ephraim and Manasseh. And generally the rabbis say, well, why Ephraim and Manasseh? Like, really, they're not even the patriarchs. And they say, well, they're the first two brothers to get along, right? I like this interpretation for me for the next little while of that blessing, thinking about it as may you be like Ephraim and Manasseh who extended Yaakov's story into a future he wouldn't see. May you be like Ephraim and Manasseh who opened people's hearts, right, in response to you, who who become agents for um People seeing differently just because of love and connection and in ways that aren't normative 
They're not his sons, right? In non-normative ways, may we be to each other real agents of uh, an ability to see and to open up and to, to, and I believe to hope, because blessing is always, of course, about hope. And right now, more than ever, we need to hang on to hope for a future uh, that is brighter than what we can see of it right now. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.